Accutron Watches present. From New York City, this is the Accutron Show, a time travel through American culture with your hosts, Bill McCuddy, Scott Alexander, and David Graver. Visit AccutronWatch.com and discover the brand that has made American history with an all-new proprietary next-generation electrostatic energy movement. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. We're not set up for that system. So here in the United States, it's very alienating. And soccer is supposed to be a very welcoming sport. And it is pretty much throughout Europe and throughout the world. The person you heard at the top of the show is today's guest, former goalkeeper of the United States women's national team, World Cup champion, and two-time Olympic gold medalist, Hope Solo. But first, me, Bill McCuddy, who's never kicked a ball that didn't kick me back, along with uh, culture writer Scott Alexander and editor David Graver. We are talking sports, and I am way out of my field. Uh, All that and more on this episode of the Accutron Show. Stay tuned. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our iconic Space View 2020 collection, recreating the stunning visual impact of the original open dial design combined with an all-new electrostatic energy movement. Time just changed again. The Accutron Space View 2020. This will surprise no one. I was that guy who was either never picked or the last person picked on any kind of sporting event as a child. Do you want to talk about it? (laughs) Not really. (laughs) You know what's interesting about our guest today, Hope Solo, is that I would have been the guy that would have been put in front of the goal because I was the big fat kid. So I'd have been the guy who but just stood not there the and blocked dr- it. Okay, so but there's a lot more to I it. I cannot be more excited to talk to Hope Solo. I played – that was my position. I was a goalie. Really? Growing up. Yeah, I grew up in England. Soccer was really serious. I've coached you know, my son's soccer teams, my daughter's soccer teams. I'm, I'm, I, I, I live and breathe soccer. And I when I watch her – used to watch her play when she was on the U.S. women's team, I would just get the – like – I would be a mess, and then I'd just see her, and she's just this rock, just this like intensity, like this diamond in the eyes kind of thing. Where you're just like, I bet that's the oh, gig. Man. I wonder. We should ask her about that, about the responsibility of keeping it all together for yeah. everybody else, because they're she's yeah. not the coach. But it's not. Per it's se. not like you put the you put the you know whoever in the goal. Like you, the kid needs to thing needs to be able to. Do it, or they'll just kick it in the goal. There's <laughs> well, much I more goal. Do it. There's much more goal than there Don't is. Don't remind kid. me. I'm having bad flashbacks now. I definitely do want to talk to her about gender and sports. So I'm from Connecticut, and when the Whalers left us, when I was some six years old, we had no professional hockey team. We had UConn women's basketball, and that's one of the greatest sports dynasties in the history of time. So I grew up revering women in sports. But the U.S. has a long way to go. The world has a long way to go. And I think she'll have lots of insight on women in sports. She's suing to get recognition for this. She's trying to get equality in pay. She's in the courtroom, has been for a long time. There's a class action suit she's going to update us on. And a a lot is happening. Also, uh, soccer turns out to be something that... The, that homeless people get involved in, that uh, you know, underprivileged kids can play. It's an incredibly user-friendly sport. You walk onto it's, a field it's with super a ball. Egalitarian. Well, it's like super egalitarian everywhere but the U.S. Yeah, yes. it doesn't. I Which don't. Is... We're going to ask her about that. Obviously, also her life seems like a movie. Indeed. I mean, she's going into the courtroom. Probably uh, who would, would it be Kira Knightley with like the ball in the in the Your Honor. I, you know, I don't know what the movie would be, but I'm telling you, she's <laughs> a she's got a movie in her. 
and uh, we will see if uh, if anyone has approached her about maybe making the story of her life. Hope Solo joins us uh, after this break, and we'll be right back in the Accutron Show. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our Accutron DNA collection. Reimagined for a new generation, the Accutron DNA combines breakthrough technology, precise engineering, and modern aesthetics to achieve a new level of technical excellence. The Accutron DNA, the new face of time for those who blaze new trails. Hope, welcome to the Accutron Show. Uh, I guess the first question is, when you have a gold medal or you have a World Cup, where, what do you get and where is it? Where is it now in your house? Oh, I'm, I'm not sure the audience wants to hear that answer. <laughs> uh oh. So, my husband and I used to have a, a, a 60, like 6,700 square foot home in Seattle, Washington, right? And we decided to up and move and build our own home in North Carolina, North Carolina in the mountains of North Carolina. So it's very rural. And we've been in the process of building our main home. So we have the mother-in-law cabin right now that you see me in. Uh-huh. Okay. And in the meantime, I hate to say this, but all of my medals, uh, my golden gloves, uh, yeah, they're all in storage. They're either in a safe or in storage. They're excellent. I hate to say that because in, our home is so small. All we have room for in this mother-in-law home is a mother-in-law and twins. <laughs> We don't have a sports room or an office. Right. And in Seattle, we had a, a great big sports room and we hung all of our, you know. But ultimately, yeah. you'll have a sports room. You're building ultimately. it. It's, it's <laughs> in the process right, right now. I don't think my kids are going to believe I played soccer or my husband played football. <laughs> well, please keep the payments up on storage because I don't want to turn on storage wars <laughs> and see like a big guy from Encino buying your uh, golden gloves. <laughs> yeah, I, we have Hope Solo's golden gloves here. I, mean, I hope life doesn't go in that direction. <laughs> you did bring up something absolutely epic, and that's World Cup and the Olympics. Hope, I'm wondering if you could tell us like – the, the emotional or spiritual or physical experience of the difference between the two. Yeah, there, there's um, quite a big difference. In fact, you know, for me, for most soccer players, the World Cup is the absolute echelon of your sport. Um, it's the biggest tournament that you could possibly win in respect for your particular sport. In this case, obviously soccer, there is a World Cup of rugby and other World Cups and uh, in my experience, the World Cup is a dedication to its sport on the highest level. And everything is different. It's um, there's better. I don't know how to explain it. There's better security. There's it's very professional. The venues are even more soccer specific or internationally football specific. Uh, the Olympics, it, you, you really feel like the respect of the sport during a World Cup. The Olympics is you feel like you're really representing America. You feel so American and so patriotic and, and you see all the different countries. Uh, it, it's a pride of your, your nationality really is what the Olympics are, where the World Cup is a pride for your sport. So it, it's very different. Um, in the World Cup, you have an extra day of rest, which often brings a better quality of football. Whereas the Olympics, it's grueling physically. You asked about the difference between the emotional side or the mental side yes. or the physical mm-hmm. side. And the physical side is very grueling during the Olympics because you have one day less of rest. Um, but at the same time, there's more teams in the World Cup. So for me, the best teams are in the World Cup. And when you win a World Cup, it's 
you can retire then and there and you can be happy with your career. <laughs> you mentioned the physicality. How many total games do you play when you make it all the way at the Olympics? Oh, oh God. Um, so there's there, for instance, in the last Olympics, there were 16 teams, which is four short or fewer than the men's team, which in this day and age, we can get into that conversation. I still don't understand why the international, the IOC doesn't, um, doesn't have the same amount of men's teams as women's teams. So in the Olympics, there's only 16 teams for, for the women. Um, so you have to be the top two of your group. And then there's uh, two or three wild card third place teams, I believe. Yeah. And it's got to be on your best. I mean, the, the, the other thing with the Olympics is you can't call in sick. I mean, you can't have a bad day. That's got to be the best you've done in your entire life is the and, and David's right. The pressure is probably different, right? Uh, like I said, you know, everything is different. It was different for me when I played between the spiritual side of the game, between the world cup and the Olympics, the mental side, the emotional side, as well as the physical side, you do have to be on your a game, no matter what tournament you play in, whether it's the world cup or the Olympics, you have to be, you, you, you can't take a game off. And that's what we saw happen in the current USA team. And then 2019, um, not the 2019 World Cup, I'm sorry, in the 20, I guess, what do we call it now? The 2021 Tokyo yeah, Olympics? Right. <laughs> 2020. <Right>. So <laughs> it, it happens quite often, you know, I mean, when, especially when you have back-to-back World Cups followed by within 10 months, the Olympics, it's very, very difficult. Even if you're the best team in the world, like the United States usually is, it's very difficult to win both because it's so emotionally and mentally and, of course, physically taxing. And that's why often you don't see a team go back-to-back World Cup champions and then Olympic champions. You talked a little bit about the mental game. And to me, I, I played goalie back when I played, you know, amateur soccer back in the day. And the there's a difference in the mentality, it feels like, of playing goalie versus playing almost anywhere else in the field. Like where it's like you are, the buck stops with the goalie, really. Um, do, is that something you've thought about, those differences? Yeah, of course, of course. I, I don't uh, wish being a goalkeeper on my, even my worst enemies. <laughs> yeah, toughest position in all of sports, truly. I, I really do. I think that it's all about the teeny tiny intricacies and you have to be perfect. If you're not perfect, you're the hero or, you, or you're the goat. And if you are perfect, which I think goalkeepers need to be efficient and they have to have really great footwork, lateral speed. They have to make the position look easy. And so when you actually are efficient at it and you make it look easy, then the crowd isn't getting that game-winning top corner save that everybody wants, right? But oftentimes when they're making that top corner save, it's because of their angles or because they're slow in their footwork or because of their out of their out of position. So the best goalkeepers in the world actually make it look very, very easy. And it's such an intricate position that it's never easy. And it's something that challenged me my entire career because you could never be great at it. You have to constantly work on, uh, you know, you're going to be, you're going to get scored on. So you always have something to improve upon. And when I look at my field players, a lot of my teammates, if we're both nervous, I have to have a, a very calm demeanor because I'm I'm mm. organizing the defense. You know, they oftentimes piggyback off of my emotions. So I have to be very strong in my demeanor and, and very calm in my demeanor. Whereas a field player, if they're nervous, even if I'm nervous, I don't want anyone to know. But if they're <laughs> nervous, 
they can just go out, run as fast as they can, get a sprint, get a tackle in, go up for a header. And then they kind of can relax because it's more of a physical, instantly physical. Yeah. Whereas my position is, is much more mental. It's, it's, it's a very difficult position, all of sports. Right. And you're kind of holding that tension the whole time, but then having never being able to sort of betray that to your, to your teammates, being the rock, you know, in the back. Can you tell looking, you know, in poker, they have tells where they can, t- they're, they're aware of who's going to, what the, whether they're bluffing or not. Can you see in some players which way they're going to kick it or can you learn it uh, as they're coming to the, towards you? you? Know, oh man, there's so many different philosophies when it comes to penalty kick taking. Um, <laughs> the best I ever was was when I went with completely, uh, what do you want to call it? The force, right? Mm, <laughs> completely uh-huh. the force. <laughs> And well, you've turned off your tracking computer. <laughs> I read the other player. It was me versus her. Everything else was put aside. I didn't listen to coaches. I didn't look at the statistics. I didn't watch too much video. It was just me versus the other player. And, and I felt like I got my mojo and I was I was in the moment. And those were some of my, my best playing days as well as my best um, penalty kick uh, defending days. Um, but then, you know, this, this new age type of sport that we continue to evolve, it becomes sometimes less about one's own innate ability and almost more statistical. And and that was really tough because there's a fine line. You want science to be instituted into the sport (laughs) and you want some of the best science, you know, so that we're the fittest team in the world. But at the same time, you still want to rely on those intangibles. And some of those intangibles are winners, you know, just plain winners. Somebody like Abby Wambach, you can't explain why she did it, but she'd get the ball in the back of the net and she would do it time and time again, right. you know? And, and I never want to take that ability away from, from that athlete that makes himself different. And at the end of my career, I had coaches tell me, you have to go right five times during the entire shootout because most likely you'll get two uh, penalty place kickers who will go to your right. <laughs> and so it became this, I never really bought into it. But it was a statistical thing where I had to do. So anyways, it's tough. You always have to make decisions um, for your team. Um, You have to respect your coaches, but also you want to rely on yourself. So it's very difficult. I'm curious if your dream changed along the way, your dream being a young child with a soccer ball to an Olympian to a World Cup champion. Did your dream as a player modify or change or grow or was it always the same? Oh, I always wanted to be the best. <laughs> I was competitive. I wanted to win. I was unapologetic about it. I, I just, I just wanted to win. I wanted to, it didn't mean I was the best goalkeeper, but I wanted to push myself to be my best and make it to world cups and make it to Olympics. And it wasn't easy. I mean, I got cut a million times. <laughs> um, I always was that young goal, young goalkeeper with potential. I started to hate the word potential because I wanted it right then and right now. I, w- I was very impatient. It, it feels like um, getting a boy to think he's the best uh, player is not that hard. Uh, but <laughs> try, trying to get some of these girls, these young women, to to just believe, like some of them have this amazing talent, and sometimes it's a it's really a mental uh, game. There is there anything that you held on to there in terms of like being able to hold on to your ego there in the in the sport? It, it's hard to hold on to your ego, especially as a young girl. And I see it. You know, I have a lot of friends who are coaching directors at major clubs throughout the United States, um, or as well as coaches for 
for very good teams, both college and club teams and uh, ODP scouts, for instance, or U.S. soccer scouts. So I have the gamut of experience in terms of kind of uh, people who relay things back to me. And I'm also on this app called MentorCam, where I get to actually mentor some of the young young goalkeepers who are aspiring to do big things and young soccer players. So I see this lack of confidence in young girls and I hear it from those who are close to me who are coaching directors and they say, girls these days, and I think probably always, it's not popular to stand out. You know, we're all, we all want to be part of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we want to be liked. We are afraid to stand out. And, and that's really difficult as a 12, you know, eight, nine, 10. But recently I had somebody on mental camp tell me they were 13 years old and they're very dedicated in being the best that they can be, but it's not popular because they have to make sacrifices and they can't hang out with their friends on the weekend. So their friends have started to essentially make fun of them for being so dedicated to something that they love. And, yeah. and it brought me back to my youth, how, I went through the same thing. I wasn't popular because I was so dedicated. You know, I was traveling on the weekends. I was missing prom. I was missing homecoming. I was playing soccer tournaments all the time. I was called a tomboy and and it wasn't very popular. And I haven't seen much change, to be honest. (laughs) Girls still want to be liked by their group of friends and they're afraid to stand out. And, you know, coaches, I feel for you uh, because we have to find a way to really bring that confidence out and allow these young girls to stand out and be the best that they can be. But what about being a goalkeeper? Isn't that the hardest thing to talk a young girl into? Because it's they want to run around, but, man, they don't want to be responsible for letting the ball come in and score on them. So isn't that the toughest position to fill? Uh, I think that the best athlete on the field needs to be your goalkeeper. Um, you see it on the men's game, especially when you watch you know, English football. Um, you don't see goalkeepers who, who aren't you don't, you can tell their physicality, they're tall, they have power, they're quick, you know, they, they have a gamut of, of, you know, positivity in their play. And in America, we've almost allowed the lesser of the athlete be the goalkeeper, because I think of our lack of mm-hmm. knowledge in the sport, our lack of discipline in the sport and our lack of history in the sport. Uh, but when you look overseas, yeah, you know, you still get those those jokes about goalkeepers. They can't play with the ball at their feet. But in the modern game, goalkeepers have to be able to play with the ball at their feet, but they also have to be fit. They have to be strong. They have to be tall. They have to be good in the ball, um, coming out for the ball in the air and their aerial game. So they have to have, they have a have they have to have a good presence overall. And so I think if we had more respect in our position in the United States, then you'd see more young boys and girls wanting to be a goalkeeper. But that's one of the things I'm most proud of is I believe I made goalkeeping cool <laughs> and I did change that. I I, uh, I always was the fittest on my team, whether it was on the national team or my club team or my college team. And I, I believe, you know, a lot of young girls started wanting to be a goalkeeper because because I was great and because I was a badass. And, Damn straight. and it, it's all about, you know, how we look at this, the position in the United States. And it's evolved yeah. and it's continuing to evolve. What can we as a society do to support women in sports? Because we're not doing enough. I know there's been some change, but how can everyone help? You know, I don't have the answer to that. Honestly, uh, <laughs> and I get a lot. You know, I do a lot of speaking engagements um, at colleges, you know, throughout the United States as well as, as overseas. And I don't know how everybody can come to the table. The, the one thing that I continue to go back on is, is to educate ourselves. So, you know, I, I, um, 
I was the first athlete to file against my employer, United States Soccer Federation, under the Equal Pay Act in Title VII. Uh, soon thereafter, uh, the current U.S. Women's National Team filed a lawsuit um, under the Equal Pay Act in Title VII, and that got dismissed. So to this day, I'm the only athlete that has um, an ongoing case in federal court under the Equal Pay Act in Title VII. And I wish I did it earlier. So where I failed is as a 30-something-year-old woman, I didn't know my rights under the Equal Pay Act in Title VII. We, uh, it took a very long time of feeling like things weren't right. Like, why do the men get treated better than the women? Why are they flying private charter planes? And why are we sitting, uh, you know, in, in economy class, in the back row, next to the, bedroom, <laughs> next to the bathroom, in middle seats, going to our World Cup? Why are we playing on turf at a World Cup? So I had all these questions and, and doubts, and I, I barked up the wrong tree quite a bit. You know, I was a, thir- a thorn in the Federation side quite a bit, but I didn't understand the law behind it. It didn't feel right. I knew something wasn't right. But until we actually educate ourselves about the laws here in the United States, then we can't create change. And that's what I had to do is I had to really educate myself, which I feel I feel like I failed because it took me so long to, to realize, you know, the actual law that I'm fighting for. Um, and I think that's what I can tell people is thank you for your support. I know you want to do good and help our cause. And the best thing that you can do is actually understand it because I don't care if you don't think women should get paid equally as men. I don't care about your feelings. It's law here in the United States. So go ahead and educate yourselves on the law. So then we can have an intellectual conversation. Hope Solo is uh, very passionate about equal rights for athletes, men and women, getting the disparity uh, erased. And she's actually gone to court to do something about it, as we're learning. She also has a charity that she is extremely passionate about. We will learn about all of that when we come back on the Accutron Show. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com and discover our legacy collection. Reviving some of the most memorable Accutron watches from the 60s and 70s, the legacy collection combines timeless design with the technical excellence of Swiss watchmaking, each limited to 600 individually numbered pieces. The Accutron Legacy Collection, inspired by the past, built for the future. Hope, you know, the uh, the folks at Accutron that, uh, that sponsored this thing did a famous ad campaign called Equal Time, Equal Pay in the 70s. Uh, why do you think the progress, we were starting to talk about the legal action you took, but why has there been such little progress made in this, in this equal pay and equal recognition in the sporting world? Why is it taking so long? Yeah, it's, you know, Props to you guys for being so, you know, before your time, being able to see uh, what should be done, uh, not just by law, but to better our society. So that's incredible that you put an ad out back in 19, what, 74? Yeah, in the 70s, yeah. The the, um, Equal Pay Act was passed in, I believe, is it 1963 or 1962? I should know that. I I want to say 1963, but it was passed by John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that that's 60 years later, we're still fighting for our rights that we shouldn't have to fight for in the court system. They should be given to us because it's actual federal law. And I, I don't have the answer why we still have to do it other than 
you know, I think a lot of people think we're further along than we really are. You know, I've worked with United States senators, congressmen and women, um, you know, uh, Vice President Biden at the time. Um, and the reality is, is that public, the public, the general public thinks we're further along with equal pay than we than we really are. Mm. And we most have of to them have think we have an equal rights amendment, which we don't, which is pretty amazing in this yeah. day and age. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so where does the lawsuit stand? Where are we right now? How how many have you been to uh, who's heard the case and what's the status of it at this moment? So, you know, unfortunately, the class action suits uh, by the current team members got dismissed under uh, summary judgment which was a huge blow because you think about how historical this case is, how popular it is. You know, you have, you have uh, celebrities behind it. You have athletes behind it. You have senators behind it. You have commercial dollars behind the fight for equal pay following the U S women's national team. It's a very hot topic. It's a very, everybody just wants equal pay. Let's be done. Let's get over with it. But the Federation is fighting really hard and they're really good at, confusing the facts for the general public. Mm. Um, so what was really mind-blowing to everybody is that the judge, as popular as this case is, the judge actually said, you know what, I'm going to dismiss this without even seeing anybody face-to-face. I'm going to dismiss it based on summary judgment, based off of the written documents. And that was really, really tough. And now this class action suit, this huge, highly profiled class action suit, very popular class action suit with players like Megan Rapinoe and Alex Morgan and one of the best, you know, popular attorneys in the country got dismissed without even hearing them. And now they're in appeal. The appellate court is, it could go either way. It's a, you know, fairly conservative court. It's um it could take up to two and a half years to get in front of another judge. And that's where the class action stands. My case is the only standing case still in federal court. Um, and we're continuing to work on settlements as well as pushing it forward in the court system. So I do have the only pending case left here in the United States in federal court. Is the end game here to change the way things are conducted going forward or i mean i assume the end game is not a settlement to you it's like you're you're doing fine i think but the the idea is to change things for the future we've always said you know when we first started this fight for equal pay back in 2015 um we always said that it's not for us we're not going to be the beneficiaries of this cause it's going to be for future generations and we knew that it was going to take a lot of sacrifice um we might lose pay we might lose games we might lose health insurance there's but we're, but we're committed to doing it. And that was the most important thing. But then when you look at the United States Soccer Federation, a multi-billion dollar company, multi-million dollar company, um, they have power, they have experience, and they know how to divide and conquer. The age-old ta- tactic of divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we want to play for our country and we want to win gold medals and win World Cups. And so when you have somebody like Samil Galati, the former president, obviously former two presidents ago of U.S. soccer, telling us that, you know, you just that's a non-starter. We're not going to negotiate. You will never get paid as much as the men. Mm-hmm. And if you put down your foot and say that, you want equal pay, then I'm going to cancel your games and you won't have health insurance. So that alone creates fear and it divides our players. And you realize, you know, 
some of the players just want to play in their first Olympics. And so it, it becomes very, very difficult to stand strong together because of the age-old tactic of divide and conquer and a multi-million dollar company that you're going up against. And, you know, we're trying to create a players association with very little money and they have some of the best attorneys in the country. So, you know, we, we hope our attorneys work for pro bono. <laughs> That's right. what we're hoping. So it's, you know, it's, it's tough. It's, it's, it, it's really, really, really tough. Um, we just hope that the history of the laws on our side, going back 60 years since, right. you know, this was first put in place back in 1963, like I said, by JFK. So we can only hope that the history is on our side. It does feel like you're still playing goalie here. Like they, they've beaten the rest of the team and it's it's gotten down. To like It's just hope there in the goal. So, yeah, I'm glad you still got your eye on that ball. Hope solo for the save. <laughs> Right. Hope, you're involved with many charities, in particular Street Soccer USA, which builds fields and brings coaches to poorer neighborhoods. Can you tell us a little about your involvement and what you do for charity work and how you support it? Yeah, you know, there's so many charities. I don't have my own charity. Um, That's one of the first things that I got told by somebody at One Young World, which is probably one of the best organizations that I've been a part of. But we have so many nonprofit organizations that we can all benefit from help we can donate to and when i realized what street soccer was doing here in the united states i i was dumbfounded i was so dumbfounded because you know why do i need to create my my own uh you know charity when they're doing such great work and some of the work my father was homeless uh growing up he was a vietnam vet and he lived on the streets of seattle and so to see what street soccer is doing with some of the undereducated communities, the homeless communities, and also their participation with the Homeless World Cup. It, it felt like it felt like it was just people going out of their way to love and create better opportunities for others. And man, I, I, I committed myself at the very beginning to Street Soccer USA as well as to the Homeless World Cup. And it changes lives. You know, I went on the grounds. I, I can't even remember. I think it was in Philadelphia. Uh, where the tournament was held, but I went on the ground and I saw the lives that street soccer changed through hosting one tournament. And you have these dedicated coaches, these dedicated role models, teaching not just soccer, but life skills and getting people off the streets and giving them more passion Mm. to do better in their lives. I mean, sport can do so much for so many people and soccer obviously is no different. I think soccer is one of the most um, welcoming sports in the world, although in the United States we have made it a rich white kid sport, so it's become very alienating here in alienating uh, here in the United States. But street soccer is not divisive; they unify people and they bring people together through the sport of soccer. And I'm just so proud to see the lives that they change. And you know, for me, it, it was easy to partner with them. Why is soccer so big every place else in the world except in the United States? Probably because of the lack of history of here in the United States, our egos when it comes to baseball, football, and the American sports and basketball. (laughs) But also, you know, it's a very diverse sport. We do need um, underprivileged kids to help make our sport better. We need Latino and Hispanic and kids from lower income communities to help build our national team. And when you have a system that's set up for only pay to play, when you have a system that's set up to pay thousands of dollars a year to 
to play for the top clubs, those are the scouts that U.S. soccer is sending out. The scouts go to, you know, the clubs of the MLS clubs. They're not going to the lower income communities. They're not watching street soccer by any means. They're not watching the Hispanic leagues. And so we're really not getting the best. This is what I say to people all the time. So it, LeBron James, right? Akron, Ohio, for God's sake. It's from Akron, Ohio. We don't have a system built here in the United States for soccer to to get the needle out of a haystack, to find right. a kid who's from a low-income community to play for the United States soccer team. We're not, we, we're not set up for that system. So here in the United States, it's very alienating. And soccer is supposed to be a very welcoming sport. And it is pretty much throughout Europe and throughout the world. And that's where we got it wrong here in the United States is it's a pay-to-play system. We're making money off the youth instead of the federation giving money back down to the youth. It's kind of the upside down triangle. And, um, you know, it, it hurt. It hurts me. You know, I, I fought against this for quite some time. I was able to make some change uh, through some of my my complaints with the United States Olympic Committee because U.S. soccer is a national governing body. It's a nonprofit organization and they should be putting money back into the sport mm-hmm. and not hitting on $70 million of surplus funds because they are a nonprofit. So I've done everything I can to fight against the system and to give more kids opportunities because we could have a U.S. soccer men's team who should be qualifying for the World Cup in the Olympics every single year, if not winning it. One would hope. Yeah, that, 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 that's the most bizarre part. Literally, like everywhere you go, your people are people are playing soccer. Everywhere you go to Spain, same thing. It's yeah. just it's just everywhere because it's it's such a low equipment sport. You would think this would be the most accessible sport. You just need a ball. Like right. you can make a goal. You know, you can't make a basketball hoop. You can't. You know, you don't have enough space to play baseball. But, but hope, with all due respect, I really blame the goalkeepers. <laughs> so here's here's what That's I'm thinking. Fair, In America, we like high scoring games, and you guys can go a whole season, and the top score is one zero. And that's not the American way. Says that we want a great. final score of forty to forty one. Um, I don't know. And and then the disparity. So, but let's talk seriously about the disparity. What would the sports promoters say? Would they say that the men's Games will will bring more fans that they can pay more because they get a bigger gate. What, what's their argument about not coming up with the with an equal pay? Okay, so I'm going to address your first issue about the high scoring. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> not let that one go. Seven points for a touchdown in the United. So so let's say the score is seven to fourteen. That's two to one. That's right. That's a, that's a typical soccer score. Right. Anyway, you got me. You it's got true. Me. I'm married to an NFL player and he actually loves the beauty of soccer. Even before we got married, he loved international football. Um, and, 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 you know, he, he played American football his entire life. So I, I do have that person to bounce ideas off of. And he, I'm happy to have that because he has taught me, you know, the stop and play aspect and the beauty of American football. But he also sees the beauty of the evolution of the or the, the constant movement of the game and the creativity of the game going through the midfield and making passes and creating and then defense. And so so he understands that. And I, I love that because he's he was a novice probably, I guess, before he got married. So we've been married now for nine years. So he was a novice probably 12 years ago. But now he's really come to understand and love the game. So it is possible, America, even if you're a football player, basketball player. Okay. Anyway, so I want to address that first. But um, the discrepancy, I, I, 
that that's a tough one uh, because like I said, the United States Soccer Federation has done a great job of kind of muddying up the waters for the American public. Um, at the end of the day, you know, the Equal Pay Act, if you have, it specifically states if you have the same employer, the same job description, the same responsibilities, then you cannot discriminate based, based off of gender, right? And so you can't tell me that the men's national team and the women's national team do anything different. We're expected to play in World Cups. We're expected to do media appearances. We're expected to play domestic games. We're expected to be in camps. We're expected to do, go through the mix zone, get on the bus after games, you know, be in your hotel. We do all the same stuff, all the same stuff. So you really, based off of the law, you cannot discriminate or say that we do anything different based off of gender. What the United States Soccer Federation is doing is saying that the men get more fans than the women's team. Well, what I've seen personally when we played in my hometown of Seattle after the Women's World Cup in 2015, I had the owner of the stadium say to me, hey, I can fill the stadium. Why does U.S. soccer only want to fill the lower bowl? The lower bowl. We're going to close the top tiers of the stadium. We're going to keep it at about, you know, average 22,500 people. So in between 20,000 and 25,000 fans for the women's game. And they did this across stadiums throughout the United States. And when we actually opened up our stadiums, we would get more fans than the men's team. But for whatever reason, it just, we played in either smaller stadiums, older stadiums, shitty stadiums. (laughs) We played on turf and our games didn't get marketed. So they kept the lower bowl closed. And and not only do you qualify for the World Cup, you win them. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, yeah. Oh, what does it take? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of insane, really. In a career of highlights, do you have a most exhilarating moment, a, a time that you like to relive or a time that was just so emotional, a breaking of the dam? Yeah, shoot. You know, um, with Carly Lloyd's retirement, you know, over the course of the last couple of weeks, I've had to do a lot of interviews, documentaries about her. You know, she's going down and as probably the best all-around player for the United States Um as well as international players. So I've done some interviews even for FIFA and all talking about my memories of Carly. And it's really brought me back to the memories that we shared together. And some of my highlights have always been playing with Carly. I mean, we're the same era. Um, She was a leader on our team for a number of years. Uh, We were good friends and roommates. And so I've actually gotten really emotional lately thinking back to my career and and all of our highlights and lowlights together. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess for me, I always say that my favorite World Cup or my favorite all-time tournament was when we lost. And I'm such a winner and I'm so Hmm. competitive that I can't believe I could say that. But the 2011 World Cup in Germany, uh, where we lost to Japan, a very worthy opponent um, who um, they played with such emotion. They played with so much pride for the country after the devastation of um, you know, their country through the earthquake and the tsunami that ensued afterwards. And they still sent a team, even though many of the players were missing family members. Uh, it was a very emotional and hard time for the Japanese team. And it was one of the first times I've actually seen we were the better team, but they they were going to win it for their country. Wow. I've never seen anything really like that. It was hmm. it was beautiful. And I just had, you know, I hate losing to this day, I, I thought we were going to win that World Cup. I, I thought we were minutes away from actually winning. And then I tasted the loss. You know, I, I tasted victory for a second. And then I just was brokenhearted that we lost. But I looked at what Japan did. And I had so much admiration and respect for what they did for the country. 
Um, so that that's a very emotional and memorable tournament for me. I remember their captain came up to me and said, Hope, a good friend of mine, I played with her in St. Louis, uh, Maya, Maya Yama, and she came up to me and she said, I'm so sorry, I know it hurts. And I said, please go celebrate, man. This may happen once in a lifetime. Don't don't feel bad for me. You need to go <laughs> celebrate because this doesn't happen every day. And so that happened in 2011. And in 2015, when we actually won, man, thank God, because I don't think I could have retired without winning the World I don't think I would ever be able to sleep if I didn't finally win a World Cup. <laughs> so the 2015 World Cup was very special. And especially when Carly scored that half half field goal, she ran back to me. Oh, and it was kind of like this flood of emotions that came over us that we're, fi- we're finally doing this. We're going we're gonna to actually take home the World Cup. Well, you're a true champion to say that one time you lost was one of your favorite times in this sport. That's that's unheard of. And I wonder, are, is there any sport where we have parity for uh, at, at golf? I guess uh, the women golfers are paid less. What about uh, driving? What about Dana? Uh, what about the, the women who jump into a, a sports car or a racing car and, and compete against men? They can win, obviously. They can, they, they're... Are they paid less by sponsors, maybe, or? No, I actually think sponsors might pay them more. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I don't have uh, the research in front of me, but I believe they uh, had less races a lot of times. Um, like they couldn't uh, take on as many races throughout the year. Um, but I think the marketing definitely is there. Um, you know, I think a lot of marketing when it comes to women athletes is based off of, you know objectification and sexualization. And I didn't do that myself. You know, I, I don't want to go on dancing with stars. I want to be known on known as an athlete first, always through and through an athlete, a winner, you know, a soccer player, period. I wasn't a dancer. I didn't want to be all Hollywood. I didn't, I didn't want any of that. But then I realized that my money-making opportunities compared to, for instance, my husband who played in the NFL, he didn't have to go on dancing with stars to make an extra buck. You know, (laughs) (laughs) he didn't have to, you know, model on magazines to make an, an, an extra couple, you know, $30,000 or whatever it was. And, and that is a pathway for women. So the marketing, I'm not going to say the marketing isn't there. That's oftentimes how we have to make money, but it does take away sometimes from the purity of the sport and the greatness of an athlete. I mean, there, there are a bunch of, of, you know, obviously there's men going on Dancing with the Stars all the time, you know, and out of their various other other lives. Was that, how was that experience in terms of like, I mean, you're used to going, I can't imagine what it's like to be on the world stage in the World Cup as the goalkeeper of the team. That is like unbelievably nerve wracking. And then I go like, but wait, dancing on Can national she TV, dancing on national <laughs> TV actually almost sounds scarier. I don't know which, which one is. Which one is the music. It'd be my worst nightmare if I ever heard that music live again. It would just make my heart start to palpitate. I think I might have an anxiety attack. I think I drank white wine every day before I went dancing on stage. No, I mean, that, that was tough. It was tough because obviously as a soccer field, I have confidence, you know, training. Um, I, I'm such a hard trainer, such a hard worker that, it gave me confidence and I actually did really good on dancing with the stars. You know, I, I got to the semifinal, mm-hmm. but it, it wasn't in my wheelhouse. And, you know, even part of the show, I was supposed to say that it was so hard, the physicality of it. And I was like, I've just been training for the world. Yeah, you know, I'm a professional <laughs> I'm not athlete sore at all. And then people got mad that I was saying, I'm not sore. 
So I, I wasn't quite fit for Hollywood because I was like, this is not hard. I mean, yeah, my my feet hurt in these heels, but in terms of like, I'm not out of breath. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it, it was very strange because I was supposed to play the part a little bit more than I than I did, I think. Huh. Well, speaking of playing a part, you talk about Hollywood, you talk about getting dragged there. Your life feels like a movie to us, uh, definitely with the component of taking on uh, all the people that run the business and actually going into a courtroom. This feels like a movie to me. Uh, Who would you want to have play you? Oh, that's too funny. Um, Well. And have you been approached? I mean, does anybody own the rights to a book about you or anything that could be turned into a screenplay? Yeah, so so I've done my first book. Um, I actually had a, a very respectable writer director come to my agent about i think it must have been like close to 20 years ago now Hmm. um actually it was in 2007 i guess so not 20 years but 2007 and very respectable screenwriter director and uh, he's done some great projects and i wasn't ready i wasn't ready and all he would really fixated on was my father being homeless and that was so inspiring to have an olympic athlete father was homeless and how did she do it blah 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 Obviously, my life has changed so much since 2007, and um, I have an approach again, and I have um, given up some of my life rights, but I got to um, have a say in the, in the writer and director, and I, I picked a very powerful female voice. Um, so we'll see if that project ever gets done, but it just it seems like things continue to change, and we're even we're in the process of writing a second book right now, and it's not going to be an autobiography because trust me, that is so exhausting. I'm tired of talking about myself. <laughs> I want to talk about you know political issues and social issues, and obviously base them off of my life experiences, but also talk about what else we see in society. So it won't quite be an autobiography, but we are working on the second book as well. Fascinating. Listen, this has been an incredible, incredible interview. Uh, you're an inspiration, obviously, to young girls, but to all P- Do you watch Ted Lasso? You know what? Am I the only one that doesn't have Apple TV? <laughs> <laughs> we'll send you. I, I only bring it up because we were talking earlier about the importance of getting people to know about uh, about soccer, and here's a show devoted to it. With I should tell you some very strong women that aren't players but behind the scenes. Definitely worth a look. I think you'll also enjoy the Serena Williams and Venus Williams uh, movie called King Richard that is about a father who yeah. mentored and uh, coached his daughters, obviously, too. Uh, I'm sure they make a lot more than some of the male tennis counterparts in that world. So we are making some progress in some places. Hope Solo, uh, this has uh, been a treat. We've uh, enjoyed having you, and we will watch uh, your career. We will wait for the movie, and uh, we will hope that you do well and prevail in the courtroom. Thanks for joining us on the Accutron Show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Hope. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Accutron Show. To listen to all of our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. To learn more about the world of Accutron, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch and subscribe to our podcast. From New York City, until next time, Accutron Time.